Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Bollier, so fancy. I, I <laughs> yes. thought she was Barbara Bollier. <laughs> Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds live uh, on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. We're here today with Jane Koston and our colleague, Ella Nilsson, uh, who has been doing a great job uh, covering many, many Senate races this year, as well as other things, um, and is going to have a lot to add. Uh, I, I was talking, it was just a couple of weeks ago with uh, Liz Nelson, the editorial director of, of podcasts at Vox, and I said, you know, if it wasn't for the pandemic, Election Day would be a good time to do like a like a live event. You know, everybody's nervous. Everybody wants to know something about politics. Nobody in D.C., at least, is really focused on their job. Uh, but there's no actual information to be had. So, you know, we could just kind of entertain people with a with a little dog and pony show. Of course, there is a pandemic, but, you know, so we, we put this together as a live virtual event, uh, which I think is really cool. Um, but so, Jane, who is going to win the election? That's what people want to know. I don't know, Matt. I, I no, think you that's do the, know. I don't know. I have no idea. Um, f- first of all, thank you all so much for joining us. Thanks especially to uh, I, I, I saw a friend of mine at our workout this morning while we did panic-induced burpees, which I think is the best form of burpee. And I think that I really appreciate, especially having Ella here, because I think that one of the challenges that we've had over the last four or five or 10 years is with the nationalization of local politics. We are There are certain Senate and House races that we've heard a lot about. For instance, there happens to be a certain member of the House of Representatives who you probably have heard of and may have been on the cover of a magazine, even though she represents a district with comparatively little actual political sway. But I think that this particular election, especially because the possibilities does exist for Democrats to gain control of the Senate, I think there are numerous down ballot races where the national story has a big impact on how those races will end up, but also what's happening individually in those districts really matters. And so I think this is a good time to talk about what's happening in local elections, down ballot races, what's happening in that, you know, in there, there's I've I spend a lot of time reading conservative media and there are a host of conservatives who are convinced that they're going to gain control of the House of Representatives. I am here to say that that seems unlikely. But again, who knows? It's 2020. We've, we're in the midst of a pandemic. Who knows what might happen? But so I, I'm looking forward to hearing more about what's happening in down ballot races. Right. So, OK, so at the top, though, there is a presidential race, Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. People have talked about it a lot. The polls the polls say Biden will probably win, but also that he might not. Um, so the the Senate is interesting, right? Just to review the basic math for people. Uh, Democrats are down three in the Senate. So if they gain three seats, it would be 50-50. Um, if it's 50-50 and Kamala Harris is vice president, that puts Democrats in the majority. 
problem for Democrats is that they have been holding a Senate seat in Alabama uh, for the past couple of years. Um, and Alabama is a very conservative state, if, as you may have heard. Um, this time, Republicans have nominated a candidate who is not a child molester. And so it appears, all right. I, I do have some personal opinions on former Auburn University of Cincinnati and Texas Tech football coach Tommy Tuberville, who lost to Vanderbilt. Um, but no, he, he he is not an alleged child predator. Right. So, so it seems very likely that Republicans will pick up that seat. Uh, so Democrats need a a lot of wins uh, to get to get a Senate majority. And I know at the beginning of the cycle, we're very skeptical about it. But so, Ella, what is the what is the sort of path look like? What is, you know, Chuck Schumer hoping to see? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I spent like the last few days playing around with a lot of maps, um, kind of mapping out the different scenarios that could happen. Um, so, I mean, to start out, yeah, Democrats, you know, seem like they would need three seats. But because of Doug Jones in Alabama, where Trump has a, I believe, 28 percent net approval rating, the highest in the country, um, they are at a disadvantage there. So they really need to win four seats um, and the presidency or five seats if uh, Joe Biden doesn't win the White House in order to have a majority. So right now, the path, I mean, the path has really always been kind of these uh, four states. So uh, Arizona, Colorado, Maine, and North Carolina. Um, and and that has sort of always been like, you know, the, the, the bare majority. Um, but along the way, Democrats, I think, have seen uh, the, the map increase and the number of paths they have increased. Although I should say, like right off the top, a lot of these races, even some of the these four, you know, core four races are margin of error races. They're very close right now. Um, and there are kind of like little quirks in each state state that make them, you know, certain ones more competitive than others or less competitive. But it has been really interesting to see the degree to which Trump, I think, is impacting a lot of these races, whether they're in uh, rural states like Montana or Iowa or in states that are more diverse um, with changing demographics in the suburbs like North Carolina or Georgia or even Texas um, that make this year such an interesting one um, for, for Senate Democrats. Let's kind of take them in order, right? Like probably the the most endangered Republican is in Colorado, right? I mean, that's the, the Democrats have John Hickenlooper, who is the governor, running as their nominee. Uh, Trump lost Colorado in 2016. It doesn't seem like he's even been trying to win in 2020. Um, and and Cory Gardner, the the senator, has not. I, I I don't quite know how to put it, but there's like a way you expect a senator where like their party lost the presidential race in their state to act, right? Like do something to indicate like you might not like Donald Trump, but you should like me, Cory Gardner. And like Susan Collins in Maine, who we'll talk about, like she is all about that. Right. Like having uh, historically, at least like trying to have a brand that is separate from the National Republican Party brand. And Gardner has not like I, I couldn't tell you anything about Cory Gardner other than that he's an endangered Republican senator. 
I do. I mean, I do think that the big difference between like Cory Gardner and Susan Collins is that like Cory Gardner was elected in 2014, which was like the last, you know, wave year for Republicans. And so he's one term senator and Collins has been around much longer than that and has had much more time to establish her her brand of main politics. And, I, you know, it also might sort of be a regional difference of New England Republicans versus Republicans in the Mountain West. But no, you're right. I mean, I think that the one thing that Gardner did to sort of try to maybe distinguish himself and make himself a little bit more friendly to independents um, that that he needs to win along with base Republicans is the Great American Outdoors Act, which was that big public lands bill that kind of, you know, was was a big win for Gardner and um, Steve Daines in Montana, another kind of vulnerable uh, Republican incumbent. But yeah, I mean, as far as Gardner's rhetoric there, you know, I feel like the the image of my mind in Cory Gardner is always him like pretending to be on a phone call in in the Senate subway basement, you know, kind of like running away from reporters who sometimes literally have like a printout of Trump's latest tweet um, asking him to comment on it. So, so I, 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 you just got to wear your AirPods all the time, um, and and you can do them. so. So, rest assured, uh, we've got we've got questions from from you guys, and and I'm gonna I'm gonna bring them up. But I I wanted to kind of give this give the a, a bit of a, a geographical tour of the Senate first. Uh, then there's uh, there's Arizona where uh, Martha McSally is going to lose again. Right? I, I think it's it's worth getting into. Um, she Ella, loves losing. Ella, I'll let you talk more about this. But it is interesting to me that you have two separate, just thinking about conservative politics, you have two separate races, one in Georgia and one in Arizona, in which the um, the both Martha McSally and Kelly Loeffler were chosen for their ability, essentially, literally chosen, chosen for their ability to uh, appeal to suburban women. And neither of them do. Really? Um, Kelly Loeffler has decided to go into the hardcore MAGA world, which is, it's been an interesting back and forth between her and Doug Collins because Doug Collins keeps bringing in like Roger Stone and Kelly Loeffler responds with QAnon. And it, it's really been just fun for everyone. But Martha McSally has the challenge of being not Trumpy enough, but also in any way tied to Trump. And I think that that's been a particular challenge in that race. But Ella, I know you know a lot more about this race. Yeah, I mean, I can give a basic overview. And then I actually would be interested, Jane, I know you did um, some reporting in 2018 on kind of some of the divisions in Arizona politics with like Kelly Ward and stuff like that. Uh. But <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the thing in Arizona is, you know, obviously, it's traditionally a Republican state, it's known for, you know, Barry Goldwater and and very conservative politics in the Southwest. Um, but, you know, the most two recent Republican senators um, besides McSally were Jeff Flake and John McCain, the late Senator John McCain. And both of those senators, you know, you could argue maybe less, I, I wouldn't characterize Jeff Flake as being moderate, but certainly, you know, they would go against the grain in their party, certainly when Trump was president um, and, and McCain, especially with his famous vote against the the 2017, you know, attempt to repeal the ACA. So I think in Arizona, you have a couple of different things going on. I mean, first of all, you have a very mobilized young uh, Latinx population. And and some my my colleague Lizo has done some fantastic reporting on on that. And some of these young voters have really been mobilized by just um, really hardline anti-immigrant policies in the state, like 
state laws that were passed passed in Arizona years ago that they kind of grew up um, under under the shadow of. But then there are also kind of these demographic changes that we're seeing in a lot of other states where you're seeing white uh, suburban voters, particularly white women in the suburbs, um, that are moving away from the Republican Party under Trump. And and these voters used to be a really reliable GOP block. They handed Republicans wins in 2010 and 2014. And in 2018, we saw this kind of stunning reversal um, where they they voted for Democrats um, in, instead of Republicans. And so I, I think that you are seeing in, in a lot of these states, including Arizona, you know, that the Phoenix metro area is booming. A lot of people are moving there kind of like Atlanta or Houston or Dallas. Um, and that's driving a lot of these changes in these races. Yeah, it's interesting in Arizona because the Arizona Republican Party, um, uh, you mentioned Kelly Ward, otherwise known to some as Chemtrail Kelly. Um, it has really been an indication of how much the party itself is dependent on Trumpism or a specific version of Trumpism. Um, and you see that in Republican parties in other states, particularly in states where the Republican Party reach is rel- has shrunk. You see it in Virginia, for example, that the Virginia Republican Party is far Trumpier than the Republican Party in other states that are actually have actually been more competitive for Republicans, which is a funny thing to be saying about Virginia. But um, the Arizona Republican Party has especially, you know, you've seen people talking about the competitiveness of Arizona. And a lot of that is going to come from non-white voters, from younger voters. But a lot of that is going to come from former Republicans or Republicans who are going to sit out this year or vote for Joe Biden and then vote Democrat down the ballot. And I think that that really is an indication. There's been a lot of writing about this, about how Trump's coattails are not that are not very long. And we saw that in 2017 special elections. We saw that in the 2018 midterms. The notion of being like Trump, which is what you see so many candidates attempting to do, has not proven terribly effective. And I'll I'll go back to Virginia. Let's let's not forget about Corey Stewart, a very forgettable individual. Let's be real. But you see that in Arizona, in Georgia, and a host of other states that candidates who attempt to rely very heavily on their proximity to Trump or being close to Trump do not tend to do as well as Trump. And what we're seeing, interestingly, is that in 2016, a lot of Senate Republicans ran ahead of Trump. In 2020, the polling indicates that a lot of Senate Republicans are running behind Trump. Right. So I, I, Lucy Daines asked a question that I just wanted to clarify here. She said, uh, asked, you know, can you tell us more about how they were chosen to appeal to suburban women? Uh, Jay means literally these are both <laughs> these are both appointed senators uh, to fill vacancies that were created. Um, and so they were, you know, selected, I mean, formally selected by the governors of their respective states. Uh, but particularly in McSally's case, this is an interesting one. So she has an interesting life story. She was a um, a fighter pilot, I think. I, I forget, Air Force or, or Naval Aviator. Um, she, you know, fought legal battles to be allowed to fly combat right. missions. Kind um, of like a Republican Amy McGrath. Yeah, I, I mean, exactly. So... It seems like a really solid biography for a Republican trying to hold on to women who are maybe drifting away from the party. Um, what's interesting is that, you know, uh, I, I watched uh, Moneyball uh, the, the other day, you know, movie with Brad Pitt. And like, you know, one of the things they do there is it's like, look, you can scout the players based on whether they look like great baseball players or you can scout them based on their results. Right. McSally has an amazing biography for a candidate. Uh, 
but she ran in 2012 and lost the primary. And then she got a nomination anyway, because weird stuff happened and she lost the general election. Then she won a House race in 2014 when like every Republican anywhere won. Um, then she lost a Senate race in 2018 and they decided to give it another role. And she's doing quite poorly. Um, she's up against Mark Kelly, who's an astronaut and astronauts always seem to do well in politics. So he, he's got a good bio too. Um, but, it, you know, it, it just seems like she doesn't, have the have the juice and Kelly Leffler, she's what's what's her story, Jane? She's a businesswoman. She's, she's a. It's interesting because she's a businesswoman who has attempted to seem more Trumpy because and less like a businesswoman. She's actually the owner of the um or one of the co-owners, I believe, of the WNBA franchise, uh, which has led to some mild controversy because she seems to believe that she's being canceled for her views on B- Black Lives Matter. And yes, I have used air quotes on the term canceled because that's what it deserves. Um but she's a she's a she's a long running businesswoman. She's donated to Democratic candidates before. Like it is a she basically literally was chosen to fill this seat because of her the belief that she could somehow satisfy suburban female moderate voters. And instead of doing so, she's really leaned into this very MAGA Trumpy aesthetic. I also really quickly want to say, I think she was also chosen because she just has so much money. And she does have, <laughs> she's crazy rich. That's also to mention. Yeah. And, and can therefore sort of help shore up Senate Republicans in places like Georgia. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, Republicans have been out fundraised in these Senate races. So Leffler being able to carry her own weight and, and help uh, counts. But so po- political scientists do find, though, that appointed senators run much weaker than real incumbents uh, or normal incumbents. And then in particular, when you appoint people like Leffler who don't have a political track record, they often do poorly, right? So this is frequently seen as like, aha, we can parachute in this person who we love. Uh, But People should take politics seriously. Donald Trump aside, it, like it's like any other job. And the people who have won elections before uh, know something about how to win elections. And uh, Georgia suburban socialites, you know, maybe don't. And it's like uh, kind of a kind of a tough one there. Um, so then, then North Carolina is. I think that this is the one that surprised me. Like I would have said, like, okay, Democrats are just like probably not going to take back the Senate. Because you've got like three bases that it seems like they might win. And then North Carolina, like that seems like a real stretch. Um, and then it turns out that their candidate, Cal Cunningham, uh, got embroiled in a, I don't know what you would call it. It's, I mean, it, it's a sex scandal, but I guess in his defense, there's no like misconduct. He's just cheating on his wife and looks like it's also idiot. interesting how, um, on that note, before I, I want to talk a little bit about how the role that money has played in the in the Senate races, because I think that that's important. Um, it's interesting how the scandal such as it exists appears to have not really impacted his polling very much, because I think that one of the impacts of the Trump era is that in many respects, things that at one time would have been absolutely anathema. You know, at a certain point, you know, we we had a former presidential candidate in the late 1980s who had a Playboy model sit in his lap on a boat called the Monkey Business, and that ended his career. And now it's just like texting scandal. Eh. But um, 
It's interesting because <laughs> well, Trump Trump sets a new Trump standard. sets so many standards. But I want to get into briefly one of the things that's interesting about this, and part of why I think that the Senate may. If the Senate does not flip, the reason in part why it was close to doing so is not just because of very competitive candidates, but because of the amount of money that candidates, that Democratic candidates specifically are bringing in. Like Jamie Harrison, who is contesting Lindsey Graham in South Carolina, brought in $57 million over the, over the third quarter. You see uh, Sarah Gideon bringing a lot of money, and especially because I think that that goes to the idea of the nationalization of politics means that if you are living in Los Angeles and you hate Susan Collins because of how she you know, voted on Brett Kavanaugh, congratulations, there is a chest of money that even was not even aimed at Sarah Gideon. It was aimed at whomever would contest Susan Collins. And so I think that there has been an incredible amount of money spent this year. Um, I, I found it very amusing that one of the things Lindsey Graham wanted to do after the election is ask about Act Blue and whether or not there were secret evil people funding people, which that's not how Act Blue does because they know who the donors are. But the amount of money that is going in, and especially in some of these like down ballot House races, where you're seeing $22 million, $25 million going into Democratic candidates, it is astounding. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you can kind of segment those races into races that have been getting a lot of donations that probably aren't going to flip, like Amy McGrath's um, race in Texas against Mitch McConnell. I mean, I think that a lot of the races that have drawn the most fundraising are against these kind of um, boogeymen, like McConnell or Lindsey Graham, like people who are very close to Trump and, you know, obviously in the national news a lot, McConnell is Senate Majority Leader, you could maybe argue is as big of or more so despised than than Trump himself. Um, and so a lot of these races, like Amy McGrath, early on was pulling in like these astounding numbers, even to a race that she wasn't going to win. You know, I think Jamie Harrison, you could maybe argue, has made his race more competitive because of, of the money that he's fundraising. But South Carolina still is um, a pretty Republican state. Let's uh, let's do a quick break here and then then we'll be back. Support for the weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. 
Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash weeds. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. How big a role does does demographics play in this election or, or translation to which swing states have significant enough numbers of voters moved from Democratic states to make a difference, like growing North Virginia, D.C. suburbs have helped turn Virginia blue? Um, you know, I, I don't think you can necessarily make it as simplistic as like they moved from this state to that state. But like what's definitely true is that this sort of booming suburban growth in the D.C. area had a big political impact on Virginia, that state places like Prince William County and um, Loudoun County uh, really suburbanized and Fairfax County just grew in population a tremendous amount. And I think that that is the dynamic that is existing in Texas this year, right? Where I'm not going to say, you know, that, that, MJ Hagar is going to win or that Biden's going to win. But it, it, it Texas has gone very rapidly from a like totally forget about it state to, uh, yeah, in the right year, the right candidate could could win. And that's about population growth in the in the suburbs of those those major Texas cities. Yeah. And it's I mean, I I am so curious, like I haven't been watching Texas as closely. I didn't I didn't write, you know, the, the our Senate explainer for Texas. But uh, in the last like few days, especially as we've seen these early vote totals come in and Texas and Georgia in particular have just had these like really eye popping numbers. Um, and Texas, I think the early vote has surpassed like the total number of, of ballots cast in 2016 in Texas. And that maybe happened like I don't know, earlier this morning or like yesterday, I can't entirely remember. But yeah, I mean, it does really beg the question, like, could this be the year? I I don't know. I, I've talked to a lot of Republican pollsters who have said that they think that states like Georgia and Texas are probably closer to being real swing states in 2024, that it's going to take another election cycle to get there. But I don't know. Looking at these early vote numbers, um, you know, I know that we can't really tell everything by the early vote. We still need to wait. But it, it has been really mind blowing to see those numbers and to see these trends. And the other thing on on other down ballot races, I should say, I think that the the D triple C on the the House side, basically the House, uh, the campaign arm for House Democrats, really put a ton of investment in Texas this year. In 2018, they their their sort of big target was California races, and they like opened up uh, an in person office in California, really focused on those races, and they had a lot of really good success. Um, and they did the same thing this year in Texas. They opened up an office in Austin, and um, they've really been focused. You know, I think in 2018, they flipped two seats and the number their number of target states, I think, has grown to like 10 potentially. So that that just shows you like a Democratic investment, but also the opportunity that Democrats see in places like Texas. And Texas is important down down the ballot, too, because um, so the Texas, I, I think it's called the House of Delegates, the lower house in their state legislature, the Republicans um kind of messed up their their gerrymander there 
And in 2018, Beto O'Rourke actually won a majority of the districts, right? Even though he lost the race by about three points. Uh, and so that means that the fundamentals clearly exist for Democrats to win a majority in the Texas House. If they do, then they have a say in the 2020 redistricting process, which is expected to add two, but maybe three House seats to Texas. Uh, but if Democrats don't win, then the Republicans get another chance to like rework uh, the gerrymander. And, you know, in states like Michigan, Pennsylvania, they've shown, you know, they can be very efficacious um, at that kind of thing and and kind of shore themselves up. So so that's going to be a, a sort of a, a big deal in Texas, apart from the, the top of the ballot races. Um, and, you know, that's like we had a question about state legislatures, uh, but that's one of the biggest ones. I think also just the the legislatures in the big swing states, you know, um, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania are going to be things for people to look at. Uh, there's also a question of like the supermajority threshold in North Carolina, I think is on there. Uh, Minnesota, where uh, the state Senate is very, very close. Republicans also have, I think, some had some hopes in New Hampshire, right, for trying to retake the state legislature there. But I mean, it's just I it don't look- think that's going to happen. This right. Year. <laughs> as a as a New Hampshireite. <laughs> yeah, it's like by the numbers, they're close. But this doesn't this uh, the what do they call it? The national political environment is not is not favorable. One to thing um, I want to note also is um, I I had a conversation with our colleague Ezra Klein a couple of days ago talking about the knock-on effects of past elections in the midterms. And one of those knock-on effects that we see in this race is, um, for instance, in Harris County, the county judge for Harris County, Texas, which is the third largest county in, the, in America, she was elected in an upset in 2018 during That's the mid Houston. Yeah, that includes for Houston. She was elected in this big upset in 2018 as Harris County Judge, which is actually a non-judicial position where you're basically the county's chief executive. Harris County has been an area that was able to do 24-hour voting and people were coming like the vote numbers coming out of Harris County have been massive. Republicans have been trying to contest the, a lot of those curbside votes in court, but that so far hasn't worked. And so, but that's the result of 2018. And so it's those down ballot races that we saw in 2018 where it's not just about controlling these specific legislatures. It's literally who is in power in these decision-making entities, who is in, especially in these, like, you know, essentially being the comptroller or the county judge in Texas, who are making decisions that will have a major impact in 2022 and 2024. Even though saying those years sounds imaginary to me for some reason. I do think that one of the big effects of of Trump in, in general that doesn't get talked about as much is um, how the grassroots is organizing at the local level because of Trump or because of things that have happened as part of his presidency. And I recently did a piece where I talked to specifically um, mostly white suburban women um, kind of looking at that demographic. And it was really interesting to me um, in in the Kansas City metro area um, on, on the Kansas side, you know, obviously Kansas is not a swing state. Kansas is traditionally very conservative, home to the Koch brothers, you know, kind of bedrock of American conservative politics. And there are a lot of, of women um, that are, are organizing, you know, basically in their living rooms and, and have been for a while. And it, it's been really interesting to see, you know, the, these women 
understand that their vote ultimately, you know, they're going to vote for for the president, but they're not going to they don't they don't expect it's going to swing the electoral college one way or another. So they're putting the bulk of their organizing efforts into local races. And right now, their main goal is to break a Republican supermajority in the Kansas state legislature. So I think that, you know, a lot of the the questions that I've been thinking about lately is sort of what happens to the Democratic Party and grassroots organizing if Biden wins? Do people become complacent or does this organizing that's been stirred up by Trump continue? And I think that a good indicator of that is local races. So Kansas uh, elected a Democratic governor in, in 2018, right? And so there's this state legislative fight to essentially shore up her her veto authority. Um, and also there's a there's a Senate race happening there. That's a I mean, this this is a long shot for for Democrats. Uh, but, you know, just as people say, right, like everybody now after 2016 is like Trump will probably lose, but he might win. Um, Republicans will probably win a Senate race in Kansas, but they might lose. Right. And in fact, it's probably more likely that you would see the Democratic tsunami than the the Trump win. I mean, if you just sort of look look at the odds. So who who who's the candidate there? What's what's happening in Kansas? Yeah. So this is actually my favorite Senate race, I think, <laughs> because it is it is just it's wild. Um so yeah, so there hasn't been a Democratic senator, first of all, elected since 1932. Um, the Democrat who is running right now, her name is Barbara Bollier. She is a former moderate Republican state senator. Um, and she is from a neighborhood called Mission Hills, which is a suburb uh, outside Kansas City. It's kind of like one of these um, suburban areas that I would sort of describe as like homes to like doctors and lawyers, like kind of rich, uh, probably mostly white people um, outside of Kansas City. And well, yay, so fancy. I, I yes. thought she was Barbara Bollier. <laughs> Maybe I'm pronouncing it wrong. I've always pronounced no, it wrong. No, no. I, I think you, you've you been to Kansas. You've done this report. Oh, I haven't. I haven't actually been to Kansas. I've just seen a lot of photos. Ah. I've I've been I've been really scrolling the Zillow on Mission Hills lately. <laughs> um, I like Kansas City, you know. Yeah, nice. yeah. So anyway, so so um, she's running against. I mean, this is an open Senate seat. Um, longtime Republican Senator Pat Roberts is retiring. So um, this, you know, the primary back in the summer got a lot of attention because um, in the primary there were two main Republicans running. One is now the current nominee, um, House Congressman Roger Marshall, who is kind of, um, I think before this primary, at least, or this general election, I should say, he was kind of seen as, you know, certainly conservative, but like not super out there. And he was running against former Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach, who... Ah, yes, the former, the person who ran for governor in 2018 and who is probably why Kansas has a Democratic governor. Yeah, exactly. The very the very <laughs> same. Um, so so I think that, you know, back, you know, in the spring when Kobach was still in the race in the Republican primary, a lot of I would say even Democrats thought that Kansas was only competitive if basically he won the primary and there was a redux of the, you know, the 2018 governor's race where he was the Republican candidate running against Bollier. And she didn't really have an opponent in the Democratic primary. So she was kind of just free to to sit there and just like fundraise a ton of money while Marshall and Kobach were going after each other. Um, but I think it's been really interesting to see. So Kobach didn't win. Marshall won the Republican primary. Um, 
But the polls still have been really close. Um, It's been like pretty consistent as far as public polling goes, a pretty consistent like margin of error race. So polls have basically been showing like Marshall two points ahead of Bollier or one point ahead of Bollier. I think the, like the highest he's gotten has been like four points above Bollier. Um, and, and that's kind of crazy that that's happening in a place like Kansas, right? Like the fact that you would think that Marshall would be more competitive. It was interesting. My colleague Dylan Scott and I interviewed Bollier, and she we, we sort of said, well, how do you feel now that you're running against Republicans' preferred candidate? And she kind of went, uh, uh, the preferred candidate was actually Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, a former Kansas member of the House who, like Mitch McConnell, desperately wanted to run but did not. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think Republicans are certainly favored to to win Kansas. But the fact that this Senate race is so competitive and the fact that not only did they flip the governor's race in 2018, they also flipped a House district. Sharice Davids, the Democrat, is running for re-election, expected to win. So, yeah, like we're seeing the effects of this everywhere. And the thing that I, I wanted to say about like Kansas Republicans, a lot of people sort of think of Kansas as having two different Republican parties. And one is moderates, like Bollier used to be before she became a Democrat. Um, and the other is obviously ultra conservatives. And it's interesting to me that Trump's approval rating in Kansas actually isn't that high compared to places like West Virginia or Alabama. So there is a real split among these Republican voters in the state, the moderates and the conservatives. And I really don't know how that's going to play out. I, I don't know if um, Biden is going to appeal to these people. Okay, so one of you uh, put on here the question, why have the Supreme Court rulings on vote counting varied so dramatically from state to state? I'm having a hard time following. Um, I, I did not select that question because I don't know what the answer is and also find it hard to follow. Uh, other than that, Supreme Court uh, election law decisions just seem confusing to me. Uh, but who did, did somebody know the answer? So I think that the difference, I'll say um, just very briefly, has been in terms of whether or not the election laws should be settled at the federal level or their state level. But I do find it interesting how much of this is, how heavily the Republican Party, and I think that this is something that has been stated again and again and again, but how heavily the Republican Party is relying on fewer people being able to vote this year. And I think that that's something that we've seen. That's something that you're seeing former Republicans. Um, I mentioned Harris County earlier. There was a lawsuit um, attempting to invalidate, I believe, 127,000 curbside votes. Um, and the you know uh, former Republican um, candidates, I saw a lot of conser- uh, several kind of never Trump, somewhat Trump, Trumpish cons- uh, conservative commentators saying like, this seems ridiculous. But you are seeing this idea that heavy, heavy hope vote t- voter turnout is likely to help Democrats, which is probably true. But also that the means by which to deal with that, and that gets to an overarching point, the means to deal with that is not to be like, well, why don't we just get more people to vote for us, but to limit the number of people who are voting at all. And I think that that seems, especially because I think that one of the other things that we've seen about this administration in general is that they have a real tendency to, um, to quote the, the wire. They seem to take notes on their conspiracies a lot and tell people exactly what they're thinking about doing. So the very, very, very clear 
we want this to go to the Supreme Court because now we've got this 6-3 majority and we really want Amy Coney Barrett to make Trump president again. That being made so clear and having these decisions so clear to be like, this is something that we believe that in these Republican-held legislatures and with Republican-held judicial seats at the, you know, at the state and federal level, we think we can hold on to power here. It, it seems uh, so obvious. And that's, I find that very strange. Something that I find most people don't know is that the way America's constitution evolved, there's no affirmative right to vote, right? So we have amendments saying that the right to vote cannot be denied on the basis of race, and it can't be denied on the basis of gender. And there's the like odd formulation, cannot be denied on the basis of age if you are over 18 years old. Uh, but like even that last one, right? It doesn't say everyone over 18 has the right to vote. It just eliminates being 19 years old uh, from the list of things that can possibly disqualify you, right? But like in principle, a state could pass a law saying, well, left-handed people can't vote. Um, now, nobody has done that, right? Uh, it might actually be constructive because like, then we might get a movement to create a right to vote. But it's something that comes up in these different litigations, right? That like you can't uh, use as a line in court, as a jurisdiction or whatever else, that like I am doing this because I need to uphold people's rights to vote. But different judges will read that as a state right in their state constitutions because state constitutions vary and their jurisprudence varies. And so then one of the things that you do see in, in this federal litigation is can the federal judges overturn a state Supreme Court's interpretation of the existence of a state-level right to vote, right? And so that's what came up in Bush v. Gore. And what the Supreme Court held there was that the Florida Supreme Court, by adopting a more liberal recount rule, was violating other Florida voters' 14th Amendment right to not have their votes be diluted by other people. And it was a strange logic, right? It's like, you don't have the right to vote, but this other guy has the right to have you not vote. And so then they put in there that like, but this isn't a precedent, right? And that's created, I think, a jurisprudential uh, mess heading forward because it's it's created this like gray zone of federal intervention into state election disputes. And that's part of what you see. And, you know, to me, ideally, like we there there should be a right to vote. People should vote. Uh, it's considered one of the like forms of political expression that you're allowed to do. It's like, yay, voting. Uh, but it's not it's not there in law. Um, let's take a quick break. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child did 
didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Will we ever see federal legislative action around gerrymandering? I don't know. Will we? Is is that in H.R. 1? That is in H.R. 1. Yes. Um, yeah. Now tell people, I, what, what was H.R. 1? <laughs> H.R. 1 was what I dedicated about three months of my life to. Uh, That's why I'm asking you about it. <laughs> this is like a pop quiz on something that feels like many lifetimes ago. <laughs> Um, so H.R. 1 was Democrats. Um, I think it's called For the People Act, technically. Um, it was Democrats, uh, House Democrats, I should say, first priority um, after they were uh, elected in the 2018 midterm. So it was it's this big, sprawling bill um, that basically, I mean, it, it does a, a lot of things. There's public financing for, um, you know, campaigns and, and trying to reform, you know, trying to get incentives for, to get money out of politics. Um, you know, there's a corporate lobby being banned. There is gerrymandering reform. Um, Voting Rights Act is in there. It's it's just like a massive grab bag of pro-democracy, anti-corruption reforms. And um, so the House passed that uh, now almost two years ago, I think. And I I think it's certainly going to be one of the Senate's um, priorities if Democrats flip the Senate. I think the question is just like, where does it fall on the list of priorities? Because now, you know, obviously we have a massive Massive pandemic, and uh, you know, we 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 have a few other things to focus on. But I definitely think that that there are it, it's still a big area of concern for Democrats. Well, and so and one strain of thought is that Democrats should not worry about the filibuster reform, and they should try to just squeeze a lot of stuff into what's called budget reconciliation bills. Um, one place where. The rubber hits the road on that is you can't do like any of this political reform stuff through a reconciliation bill. So it's in a weird like HR1 exists in this weird like quantum superposition where like they called it HR1 to designate that it was like a, a high legislative the top priority. priority. Yeah, it already passed the House. So, you know, unlike some stuff like it's been field tested, like the law is written Democrats have taken the vote on it. Senate Democrats were like nominally for it. I mean, obviously McConnell did not bring it up, Um, but there's no way you could pass it under like the current strategy because you would need to get, you know, a dozen, six or seven optimistically Republican senators to go on with it. And like Republicans hate this. They will not go for it. Because it's it's like, you know, some stuff like, you know, you could probably get some people to vote for a minimum wage increase of some kind with some compromise, some sweeteners. But like changing the rules to make them less favorable to Republicans is not like what the Republicans are going to do. Uh, so that's going to be I think that's just like that's a hard question for Schumer, you know, and his people coming out of this is like, are they going to be able to deliver on any of these commitments uh, within the current span of the rules. So there was another question here, you know, if Democrats do moderately well in the Senate races, 53 or 54 seats, uh, which that would be really well. I mean, to get 
to 53 seats from 47 would would be a big win. They say, what's possible in the area of gun control in the next Congress? And it looks to me like what's possible is nothing uh, for the exact same kind of filibustery reasons. Well, so I can sort of talk about like, I I did a lot of reporting recently on what what is Senate Democrats agenda if they should take back the Senate and also how are they approaching the idea of the filibuster and filibuster reform. So and I know, Matt, you have have done some reporting on this as well. So if you want to jump in, please feel free. So Democrats have a pretty like they have a strategy as far as how they are going to approach filibuster reform should that time come. And it's worth saying, like the piece that I have up today on the Senate math, like even if Democrats have a blowout beyond blowouts, they are almost certainly not going to win a 60 vote supermajority like they did, you know, back in 2000, 2008. Um, so, you know, the the closest they they could plausibly get is like 58 or 59 votes. And I think that that is even a, a big reach. So they are go- either going to have to do, as you said, budget reconciliation um, or they are going to have to consider um blowing up the filibuster. And so basically, the way that Democrats want to kind of approach this is they have sort of decided that if they take if they take back the Senate, there are two big priorities that they are going to work on first. And that's partially responsive to our current situation. Um, It's COVID-19, you know, additional COVID-19 relief, probably sort of a more um, organized, cohesive federal response and more relief for states and and municipalities, more money for testing and tracing and isolation and whatever else is needed. And then there is going to be probably some form of an economic, you know, jobs bill, um, whether that includes infrastructure or some sort of green jobs bill. We don't entirely know yet. But, you know, Biden ran on Build Back Better, the famous slogan. Um, So they, you know, Biden and Senate Democrats all agree, I think, that that should be one of the main first priorities is economic revitalization. There is also another kind of I don't want to say ulterior motive, but um, there's strategy to these two things being first, because COVID relief was one of the only things that Democrats and Republicans agreed upon, um, you know, in in the last legislature. Granted, it was under a national emergency um, with the coronavirus crisis. Um, But that's one of the few bipartisan things. And obviously, jobs and infrastructure is another kind of bipartisan thing that Trump and Democrats were supposedly, you know, supposed to agree upon before Democrats started investigating Trump and all of this other stuff. So Democrats basically want to try to hold Republicans' feet to the fire and start out with these two things that they should theoretically agree on. And then that sort of gives them license to say, hey, Republicans didn't want to do COVID relief and they didn't want to do an infrastructure package. So if we can't do these most basic bipartisan deals with them, then clearly they're showing their colors and it's going to be more, you know, Obama era obstruction, essentially. And if that happens, then Democrats, I think, are going to take a closer look at filibuster reform. I, I think it's also going to be interesting. And I've, I've been um, hemming and hawing over this for a couple of weeks now. But what you will see, I think, it, if Joe Biden were to win the presidential election and if Democrats were to take the Senate is among conservatives, a fascinating return to fiscal libertarianism. And I think that that is really going to be you are going to see that even in stimulus negotiations. You've seen that already. Even back in July, you saw um, 
Uh, Senator Rand Paul, who's a quote unquote libertarian. Um, you saw Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska essentially saying, you know, well, the Trump White House, they sounded like Bernie Sanders out here with their willingness to spend money. And so you saw this ascent, this this triangle of terror of Nancy Pelosi, Stephen Mnuchin, and Senate Republicans who could not come to any sort of agreement on on spending for stimulus because while Mnuchin and Pelosi would have an agreement, um, you saw that Republicans were just not on board for that. And I think that um, you know what you've heard from Ted Cruz lately, what you've heard from Senate and House Republicans is that there will be a return to the idea that what we really need is to cut spending and start caring about the deficit. And it'll be a fascinating return because as you'll remember, part of the 2015-2016 message of the Trump campaign back then was that deficits didn't really matter, but also he could fix it, but also it didn't really matter. So that's something to pay attention to is that I would not be surprised at all to see a lot of Tea Party-esque rhetoric about the size and scope of government return from the same people who were arguing mere weeks ago for Infrastructure Week. (laughs) Okay, so one question I I wanted to address because I I was just writing about this is I've been very curious if we might see a shy Biden voter turnout phenomenon. I know I might be overly optimistic, but if it is a landslide Biden victory and the culture of MAGA groups is so all-encompassing, is it possible some folks in that group may have changed their mind on Trump but not say anything to anyone else about it? Um, So I I wrote a piece on on shy Trump voters. It it applies to Biden, too. This shyness paradigm is not the right way to think about polling error, in my opinion. Um, About 20 years ago, you had poll response rates of around 40%, right? About 40% of the people you called would answer the phone. That was high enough that pollsters just kind of brute forced their way to get the numbers that they needed. And if there was some kind of differential willingness to answer, it could throw polls way off. Uh, So I'm not saying the polls were all off, but it it made sense as a theoretical construct. Uh, Today, response rates are at about 5%, right? So everybody is shy, like in that in that kind of sense, right? There's no demographic group that's like eager to answer polls. Um, So modern polls are very model intensive. Right. They do a lot of math based on census weights or voter registration data to like try to assemble a representative view. And so some pollsters, uh, online pollsters, mostly don't start with a random sample at all. And they just like craft a synthetic electorate. Uh, Random digit dialers still do the phone stuff, but there's incredible amount of modeling artifacts in there. Uh, So the question in all these things is more like, has the modeling been done correctly? Right. So this sort of infamous 2016 Great Lakes polling error was that they did not separately consider college graduates and non-college graduates in the Midwestern states. And that threw the numbers way, way, way off, right? And so you can think about this intuitively, right? If you are calling uh, people in Florida and you know that you need to wait, you know, quote unquote, Hispanics a certain amount, but every single Hispanic person who you call is a recent immigrant from Venezuela, um, that's going to throw you way off, right? Like if you understand Florida, you understand that the Venezuelan community, the Cuban Americans, the Puerto Ricans, like they all have different voting behaviors. And so the more you get down into state level polling, the more those little nuances actually matter and the more challenging it is to do it right. 
Um, so like long story short, like, yes, like the polls could just be wrong, right? They, the Biden could be doing way better than the polls say, uh, Biden could be doing way worse than the polls say, but it would be for some reason like, like that, right? So like there has never been a high turnout election in Texas. Uh, so pollsters guess what a high turnout election in Texas would look like based on what they know about people who live in Texas but don't vote. Uh, but like literally, since I think the early 60s, like there's just never been a high turnout election in Texas. So they don't know. And the guesses the pollsters are making in that state in particular are quite different from one another uh, because it's it's sort of uncertain. Um, so if Trump loses, does he run again in 2024? What do you think, Jane? Um, Trump forever. I, I don't think so. Um, I need to double check... But I think that 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 seems highly unlikely. He would, I mean, granted, he would only be a spry 78. Um, But I also think that one of the challenges we have is that um, we have both a the psychological phenomena of recency bias, but also highly selective recency bias, which is why people keep talking about 2016, but not talking very much about 2018, a year that happened with a with an election, an election that went very well for Democrats. But also we have a forward thinking bias that is informed only by what we know at this very moment, which is why you've seen a couple of people prognosticating that the 2024 Republican candidates will be like Nikki Haley and Donald Trump Jr. and Tom Cotton. The, I have no idea. I think that there is very much a chance that Donald Trump will still play a big role in presidential politics. But I also think that that would probably be more in the Roger Ailes role as being the head of a big entertainment conglomerate, um, you know, a competitor. There was some reporting um, in late 2016, early 2017, that had Trump w- lost the 2016 election, his idea was to start a network that would be a competitor to Fox News because he doesn't think Fox News likes him enough. And you've seen that with the rise of OWN and Newsmax, you've seen that there are networks that I'm sure that he would likely want to have to play a part in. But I think that what will be really interesting for me, and this is kind of at a larger take, and obviously there's every chance that Donald Trump could win again because anything can happen. But what we'll see is whether or not, I don't think we're going to see a repudiation of Trumpism if Trump were to lose. I think we will see the argument that Trumpism is somehow separate from Trump, which I think is untrue, but you will see people saying like, well, we could do Trumpism better. And you'll see people who start to talk about Tucker Carlson running for office or something like that. Someone who could... You know, shoulder the mantle of Trumpism without having the burden of being Donald Trump, who wants to talk more about Twitter's trending topics or the time Bon Jovi was mean to him. So I think that it'll be interesting to see whether or not there is someone who is actually more legitimately Trumpy than Donald Trump who decides to run in 2024. Yes, maybe. <laughs> So one good question here that, that we that we just got in the chat is, you know, uh, it, it turnouts on track to be higher. Is that good for Biden or, or what's the case for, for Trump possibly winning with high turnout? Um, I think most people know, you know, historically, uh, Latinos in particular and younger people uh, vote at low rates. Um, so if they turn out more, 
in a high turnout election, perhaps those low turnout groups would turn out at a higher rate, and that helps Democrats. I would say the uh, the factor on the other side is that college graduates turn out at a higher rate than non-graduates. Um, and that didn't used to be a huge deal in politics. But Democrats have now come to be very heavily weighted toward college graduates who um, punch above their weight in the electorate. So, I mean, like, Ella, like you were talking about, about Kansas, right? And so, like, in the current Kansas paradigm, where, the, the, I mean, there's just not a lot of Latino people in, in Kansas. Um, I would think that a low turnout election might benefit Democrats there who sort of have the doctors and lawyers, the high social capital people, um, whereas a, a high turnout election could be better for Trump. Right. It de- definitely like depends on the state that you um, are talking about. And um, I mean, th- yeah, the other thing, too, I mean, yeah, I guess it sort of depends on on uh, if if it's high turnout among these these moderate Republicans who dislike Trump or or what what exactly the, the electorate is going to look like in in places like Kansas specifically. But I, I do I do agree with that broadly. I mean, the other thing, too, whether it's a low turnout or high turnout election, you know, one constant is always older voters um, who who typically vote at higher rates, certainly than than their younger counterparts. And um, the a lot of the interesting polling that we've seen thus far, it kind of varies from state to state. But on the whole, Biden appears to be um, winning uh, older voters, especially voters 65 and over in in a lot of key swing states. Um, that is something that I think his campaign was not expecting like a year ago. They, you know, one of his pollsters told me a while back that even if they just cut into Trump's margins with older voters, they would be they would be happy about that. And now it appears that that he could potentially, you know, win that block in some states. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll have to see what what older voters do, whether or not, whether or not it's a high or low turnout in, in different states. All right, here's a good a good closing one. Can each of you talk about the first election you covered? Uh, so I, as the old person, will, <laughs> will tell you <laughs> about a crazy race called 2004 in which uh, Democrats were down the whole time and John Kerry lost the popular vote, but he came close to winning the Electoral College because he overperformed in the Midwestern swing states uh, where people liked his message against outsourcing and globalism and, and things like that. And it it's a reminder. There was also a question in here about like the most consequential elections ever. And I think a lot of people say that like 2004 felt important at the time, but ended up seeming unimportant because Bush's second term was not very consequential. But I think all the time about how different history might have gone if we had felt that Kerry's sort of turn toward populism wound it up unexpectedly defeating like a wartime president who was running on his tough national security message. Like, it's not that I think that like the policy, if I think about the Trump years, right? Like this has not been a super exciting four years from the standpoint of policymaking or like legislation passing, but it's really changed our politics, right? Like, that's what we've been talking about this whole show. And the the close failure of the Kerry gambit, in some ways, like put us on the trajectory that that we live in today, as much as anything else. Um, I don't know, you guys, you, the first election you guys covered was probably like a 
like a special election six months ago or something. <laughs> um, I mean, for me, it would be 2016. And I think that that's one of the challenges here is because um, I, I used to write about college football in the NFL uh, professionally, and I think about it a lot. But I think that it, it's very... If you are ever interested in going into political journalism, I highly recommend starting out in sports writing because you will never experience people as enraged at you as you will about like a high school football game that you kind of forgot about. Um, but one of the challenges that we have generally is that currently with Donald Trump in running in elections, our N is one. We have one example of him running in a presidential election. And we will likely, and this is you know, our second example that we are going through right now of him running in a presidential election. So all of our assumptions are based on the fact that he, uh, he won, even though the circumstances, the year, everything else has changed, we still have this N equals one. And I think about this a lot with prognostication in college football, where you have this idea that like, well, they won last year. And then you're like, well, they also changed, changed quarterbacks and like all these people graduated. So there is no indication that that should carry on. But because of, for me, the N is one. My one presidential election that I covered as a political reporter before I was a speechwriter and did all sorts of things during the 2012 and Obama and 2008, I was in college. Um, and so my N is one. I think that that's been very impactful on how I'm trying. I see this race. Um, I go back two years before Jane. My first election was the 2014 Senate race between Jean Shaheen and Scott Brown. Ah, and yes. and the most visually memorable thing um, I, will, I will remember from that race is um, somebody who I believe now is a Senate staffer dressed up in a chicken suit outside of a diner uh, waiting for Jean Shaheen, sort of, you know, saying Jean Shaheen is too chicken to do town halls because that is the beauty of local politics. <laughs> Uh, may I ask, was that diner in Manchester? No, it was in Keene, New Hampshire. Okay. Lindy's Diner. There was one diner in Manchester. And I remember there was a line out the door because I was doing GOTV for a job I had there in 2014. And there was a line out the door. And I just remember being like, Man Manchester, New Hampshire is a fascinating place. Yeah, That's I used all to I'll live say. there. I can agree with that. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, the, the 2016 presidential election was the first one that I covered in person. And, and I was in New Hampshire, you know, kind of during the time of both Trump and Bernie's like rise in the New Hampshire primary. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I was also in New Hampshire back in, you know, the winter last year when it was the lowest point in Joe Biden's campaign. Um, and then he won South Carolina and Super Tuesday after everyone was convinced he was out of it. You know, and, and when did he totally finish in New Hampshire? Fifth. Yeah. Yeah, it was bad. That's, it was a blow. It a... was bad. <laughs> but that's but that's rough for New Hampshire. It, it is rough for New Hampshire. So, I mean, like the thing that I'm kind of looking at for, you know, 2024 is do we even have a New Hampshire primary in Iowa caucuses, um, you know, or or is the system totally different? So, yeah, it's 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 definitely going to be a time of interesting political change. There you go. OK, thanks, guys. I'm going to going to wrap this up here. Um, so but I want to thank, you know, Jane and Ella for taking the time to do this. And to everybody, uh, you know, here listening live, thank you for being one of the founding contributors. We're going to start trying to do more special stuff for our contributors like this Weeds Live experiment. So keep an eye on your inboxes for updates. You can give again by going to Vox.com slash Weeds Live. Uh, click on the link to manage your subscription. Um, so that's all really cool. Um, and then the Weeds uh, will be back we're going to see a little bit about what happens before we think about the scheduling for the next couple of weeks shows. Uh, but, you know, hopefully there will be information and we will be discussing it with you as soon as possible. Bye.